there, right there. He said it again. I mean, this is getting kind of ridiculous. So he's just healed, didn't just heal, he resurrected a girl, 12-year-old girl who'd been dead. And then he tells everybody, don't say anything about it. Don't tell anybody. How's that supposed to work? And we disciples were sitting there thinking, why not? I mean, what a great way to launch the mission. What a great way to start a revolution. This is not every day. You cannot unsee a resurrected person. I mean, everybody, no matter where you live or when you live, knows that people who die generally stay that way. And we're supposed to be quiet about it? I mean, it just seems kind of dishonest at best and completely destructive to what we're trying to do at worst. And besides, this is a small town. Everybody knows this family. The synagogue ruler knows the daughter, seen her playing, and then the news comes that your daughter is dead, and we knew that she was sick, but, you know, right in front of everybody, who, who's going to make that up and t- play a dirty trick on parents like that? They know that she's dead. And, and then we're supposed to go outside with this girl. How are we supposed to pretend she wasn't? She, nothing happened. I mean, she comes out with her parents and does the royal wave, you know? And, and you know what people are going to do. They're going right, to jump right at us. They're not going to go to the big guy because that's too threatening. They're going to come to us minions and say, how's that work? And, so, and they're going to want to get their hands around our necks. You know? And they're going to want you know, us to tell them that everything's going to be okay. Did I see a ghost? What happened? So forth and so on. You see, that's exactly what all the disciples are thinking. And don't get too, you know, snobby about it. You'd think it too. Because it's sort of like, well, how does this affect me? What, what, what's, what's going on here? And, and how can, in any way, this help the mission of Jesus to tell people to be quiet? Just like he tells the demons to be quiet. He tells the healed people to be quiet. Now he's telling the family of a resurrected girl to be quiet. How is that supposed to help anything? You know what? I think we better get Peter to go up there and ask him what the... Who is going on here? See, here in 2020, it's really miraculous. It's really amazing with Jesus constantly telling in the book of Mark over and over again, be quiet. It's what's called the secret. It's what's called the Markan secret as in Mark or the messianic secret. We'll see why that is in a little later. It's this secret that's all over the book of Mark. It's a distinctive theme. And because Jesus says it so often, it must be important for us to, to understand. Because the, the secret is like, what in the world, what is Jesus trying to do here? Because really, here we are in 2020, we're worshiping this Jesus, and yet he, did, he seemingly, in the beginning, did everything he could possibly do to keep it quiet about who he was and what he was doing here except for the few people he was teaching. Right? I mean, what's the purpose of the secret? You see, the, the, the secret is uh, the worst-kept secret in all of history, <laughs> but, but it's, a, it's the kind of secret that, you know, 
Mark is pulling out the pieces. You see, all Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they pull out the pieces just like you and I would if we're writing a story that, or if we're reporting an event or an accident or something. We see it from a different angle. There are certain things that are more important to me than are important to you and vice versa. And it's not that we're contradicting each other. It's that we're putting the different pieces in because you can't, especially with Jesus, you can't say everything. John flat out says that at the end of his gospel. You, I couldn't put it all in here. So I picked the things I thought were important. But also, we know as Christians, we believe that the Holy Spirit guides these gospel writers and says, hey, put this in and so forth. But on top of that, think of this. Mark is the first one to write a gospel that winds up in our Bible. The first person. So he can't plagiarize somebody else. Who's, he's going, who's he going off? Well, we said Peter has, he's been an interpreter for Peter. So Peter's been telling him what he saw. And so Peter surely told Mark, hey, I don't know that I fully understand it even to this day. You know, they're 60-some A.D. in Rome. I'm not sure that I fully understand it to this day. But you know what? you got to put it in there because it must be important because Jesus said this. Be quiet over and over and over again. He said, come on, let's go hide out here. Let's go do this. He was so stealthy. It must be important in some way. And when you think about it, the very fact that the Gospels made it all the way to Rome and in spite of the fact of Rome trying to kill off all the Christians and you know, stomp on us, it's, it's going even further and faster, it really makes it even more miraculous in a way. So he puts it in his gospel. He puts it in his story. It's one of the distinctives of the book of Mark. But here's the thing, and please understand me, I'm not trying to be sacrilegious here. Jesus' secret is terrible, terrible marketing strategy. It's awful. I mean, how in the world... I don't know any human being who would do it this way. And maybe that's a clue to why. A lot of people have debated this over the years. And what I'd like to do today is do a little bit of a treasure hunt and sort of dig through the Bible and sort of see what we can unearth. And if I can get you to be in a place where you're kind of compelled or interested in reading the Bible, reading the Gospels especially, and try to dig in a little deeper. What does this mean and what does that mean? Like if, if you've been here as we've been going through the book of Mark and you've said, you know, starting in chapter one where it's three times Jesus says, be quiet, don't tell anybody. I mean, if you, if you kind of went off in your head and said, what, what's that in there for? I honor you. Good job, you're a Bible scholar. I mean, that's the thing. So if I can compel some of that, then this is gonna be a good day. But for example, take the passage or the story that uh, Kevin and Christian uh, did uh, the last two weeks. Thank you, guys. They did a great job. Uh, but just, I want to focus on the last verse because this is where Jesus does it, the secret thing. But I'm going to start halfway through verse 40. He says, it says, after he put them out, that is, the people out of the room, he took the child's father... So apparently the inner circle of disciples were still in there, Peter, James, and John, those guys, the family, father and mother. Uh, Charles' father and mother and the disciples who were with him, maybe some others were there, and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Apparently, say, prove that she's like alive, give her something to eat. What do kids want? They want something to eat. 
I mean, <laughs> think, just think about this. I mean, this is, I think about this story every time I go and see that synagogue, because this is the synagogue leader at Capernaum, because that's probably where it was. It was in the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Every time I go to Capernaum, I love Capernaum, because Capernaum is one of those places in Israel that is what the Scottish or the Welsh call a thin place. It's thin between here and there, between here and the beyond. I just love it. You can almost feel it. At least I can almost feel it. In fact, I feel so sort of embraced by that. A year and a half ago, I fell asleep for a 45-minute nap on a bench right on the beach where Jesus called his disciples, which has got nothing to do with this passage, but I just thought I should give you more information than you need. But here's the thing. Jesus is in this place. He's in his home base. He's in Capernaum, and he's... he's uh, Everybody knows him. People, by now, people have seen him. They all know this family and so forth. And, and Jesus says, don't tell anybody. It's like with the leper. He says, don't tell anybody. What, what could he possibly up, be up to? I mean, this seems like the mother or father of all of the secret events. I mean, it's, it's like, how do you keep secret a resurrection? It, I mean, many times the command just seems unrealistic when Jesus commands them to be silent. Many times that happens. And, and here's the crazy thing. This has spun the minds of scholars and people way smarter than I am and spun them around for centuries, ever since Mark wrote it down on parchment. Ever since. They've been debating it. And, oh, this, he gives the secret because of this. And he gives a secret. Why Jesus would do this is just, it, it may, it, they're still arguing about it today. In fact, here, here's why. Let me just give you seven of the events. I mean, it happens many times in the book of Mark. And remember, Mark's the shortest gospel. It happens over and over again. For example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 44, after he's told the demons twice in two events in Mark chapter 1, then he tells it to a formerly leprous man, be quiet. Mark 3, 12, he tells to impure spirits, more demons, be quiet. Then in, when we saw it back in, in, in chapter 5, we, we saw that when he healed the demoniac with legion, he tells him, because he's not a Jewish guy, to go back to the Decapolis and talk all he wants. But then after that, verse 43, what you just saw, the family, the girl raised from life to life, he tells him, be quiet. Mark 7, verse 36, the formerly deaf and mute man, he tells him, be quiet. Imagine that. <laughs> but I just found out I can talk. How did you do that? I don't know. I mean, what you, yeah. Mark 8, 26, tells the former blind man to just go home. Do not pass go. Do not go to the pub. Do not go to your town. Go home. He's hiding there. Mark 8, 30, Peter, when he says Jesus is the Messiah, even then, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Well, look at that. Mark chapter 9, verse 30, hiding from people so they won't find him. What is all this stealthiness, all this secretness, this hiddenness? Well, like I said, scholars have been debating this forever. One of the scholars that I, I, I most uh, appreciate with regard to Mark, he's, a, he's an expert on Mark. His name's James Edwards. He's written a book about this gospel. Uh, he's a professor up at Whitworth College. And here's what he says about that, uh, uh, one of those demon uh, deals in the, in the first chapter where Jesus says, you know, don't, you know, be quiet. And, uh, are there any children in the room, preschoolers? If you, if you translate it out, it really means he, he, he tells the demons to shut up. Okay, just saying. Um, but here's what, here's what Edward says. Demons, in turn, are closely related to the command to, to silence, which occurs here for the second time. Jesus 
would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. That's what it says there in that verse. The command to silence touches one of the most controversial nerves of the gospel, as in this gospel. Why does Jesus seemingly work at cross purposes with himself by forbidding the healed to make uh, him known? The command to silence seems to frustrate the publication of the kingdom of God for which he has come, which is exactly what he says in verse 14 and 15 in chapter 1, that he came to establish the kingdom of God. What a great way to say it is, hey, look what I've done. What's with that? So again, if I can just help us dig into that and kind of get, be compelled a little bit to understand what the Bible says. We're not looking for super secret meanings, you know, that nobody's come up with before so we can write a book and go on talk shows. We're not doing that. We're just trying to find out what does this mean and why would Jesus do it this way? And, and to approach it, we're going to cover three questions. Three questions that have to do with, you know, how in the world does this whole command to be quiet work? Uh, first of all, it's a strange command for, from a man who claimed to be, also claimed to be God, right? 100% man, 100% God, that's what he's claiming. It, it's, a, it's a strong command for a man who seems to be unwilling to stop it. In other words, unwilling to stop people to keep talking. And as we're going to see in a minute, it gets more and more intense. And, and thirdly, the demons are forced to be quiet. But the people aren't, you know? I mean, he could just, if he can heal a guy, he can certainly shut mouths, you know? What happened in there when, when that, how did that little girl come to life? Well, it happened, you know, I mean, he could have done that. But he doesn't. He lets it go. How does that work? Well, let me give you a good example. It's, in my Bible, it's one page over in chapter 7, beginning at verse 33. Here's another one of those uh, events where Jesus says uh, to be quiet. After he took him aside, this is the man who was mute and um, deaf. After he took the man, uh, took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers in the man's ears, and then he spit and touched the man's tongue. Now, just in case that's like blowing you to, down another track, I need to say this every time I come to this, okay. Jesus' spit was divine, I'm sure, but it was also human. For those of you who are germ freaks, I know that makes you uncomfortable. I've been there. I understand it. But it's good to be uncomfortable sometimes. So let's just try to get on with the point. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. And at this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. And Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more he kept talking. They kept talking. People were overwhelmed with the ama amazement. And he, he has done everything well, they said. Even, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So, hey, this is the guy you really want to tie your boat to. But what's interesting here in, the, in this text, okay, this is, this is halfway through Mark's story, right? This, this becomes, chapter 8 is sort of the tipping point. This is the, halfway through the story, and, and they've been at this for a while, and Jesus tells this um, formerly mute man and everybody around who saw it to be quiet and not to, to say anything about it. What, what's with that? In fact, it even becomes more intense because uh, in, in verse 36 where it says he commanded them, uh, in other texts, in other times, there's a Greek word that, that is used to describe how Jesus told them or whatever. This is commanded. This means he was not just saying, hey, uh, don't tell anybody, okay? He was, he was doing a teaching on don't talk. 
Don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet. I mean, he, it's, it's like an extended teaching on, oh, did I say, don't say it? And then, if you look at the next verse, Mark makes the point, he's contrasting here, that people even talked more. They disobeyed his command. Whoa, Dwayne, does this mean that if we disobey Jesus, good things will happen? No. Write this down if you're thinking that. Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul. Because of grace, should we, have, should we sin more? He said, may it never be. That's not the point. The point is, is that Jesus is telling the dark spirits, the demons, to be quiet. He's telling them, the, and he's forcing them to be quiet. But the people, he doesn't demagogue them. He doesn't force them to be quiet. He, he puts the brakes on. But he, in his grace, knows the result that is going to happen. You see what Jesus is doing here, at least in part of the reason why the secret is here, is because he's making it so it's got to be a miracle for this thing called the cross. See, you and I jump ahead to the cross because we know the story. These people don't know any of that. We jump ahead to the resurrection because that proves all things. That's right. But they didn't know any of that. And, and if we blow by all of this and move to that all the time, we're going to miss some of the deep things, some of the important things that teach us about how we live our lives and how we live from day to day. That's why we get so bored with the gospel sometimes. Because we don't want to go and see this kind of stuff. If that ever happens to you. But the thing is, is that Jesus knew something. He knew that there was a certainty to this mission God had put him on, so he didn't need a slick, sweet marketing strategy. In fact, he undercut the old idea of a marketing strategy by the way he talked to people about his miracles and the things he did. You know, to illustrate this, one of my favorite stories of my lifetime that happened when I was living, I was a little kid, but, well, not a little kid, I was a kid, um, when this happened, but it is a story of victory snatched from the jaws of failure. It's Apollo 13. I love that story. The whole space program just, I like it. But I love watching, and Tom Howard's movie about Apollo 13, I love it. In fact, my favorite scene is Gene Krantz, the mission controller. You know, these guys, they're, they're, they're flying toward the moon. They're supposed to land on their moon, but their spaceship just blew up. And they're, you know, going to circle and come back. And, but we don't, they don't know how this is going to turn out. And, and Gene Kranz gets up and he goes, America has never lost a man in space and it's not going to happen on my watch. See, I, I memorized that. <laughs> we watched it again last summer, my family. And then he's walking out of the room and he goes, failure is not an option, people. I love that. I think Jesus is really saying failure is not an option. Do what you want. Blow this thing up. I don't care. But you know what? It's not an option. The reason I'm thinking about this is because this Christmas, um, we got a present together. Uh, well, we each got a, a present from our youngest daughter who had been in Washington, D.C. And um, she went to the Smithsonian. She was there on a work-related uh, trip, and she went to the Smithsonian, the aerospace one, and she got these sweatshirts for both Sharon and I that say, failure is not an option. <laughs> and it's, just, it's a big Apollo 13 symbol. Because you see, Sharon and I had a pretty big anniversary. I won't tell you how big, but it was a few decades. And um, we, we just had it uh, on the 28th because we got married three days after Christmas. And there's a story behind that too. Uh, my personal story, anyway, uh, the way I remember it is, her dad, who is the pastor who's going to marry us, could either be there... 
three days after Christmas and we'd be, have anniversary for three days after Christmas our whole lives, or we could wait till July. I was not waiting till July. So that's why we had to, but so, so we, we, we haven't had this big anniversary. And when we, when we opened our presents, she said, oh, open them, you know, here, now you've got one, you've got one. Remember, Dad, you said failure's not an option. All these years, congratulations. You know, because I've told my kids, I've, I've told maybe some of you that the way I remember it, one of the things we committed ourselves to is in the beginning stays, I said, we are, failure's not an option. We both made that commitment. And we, we said, you know, even, we did little things like this, even if we're kind of angry and frustrated with each other, the D word is off the table. Never use it. Don't speak of divorce. Don't speak about somebody else's divorce. Don't do that. Don't say, hey, you know what? Why don't you just go get another somebody else to do that for you or be that person for you? Mm-mm. Then, that, that, no, because it's not an option. And you may, if you're not a married person, <laughs> you may think, oh, that's a terrible reason. I mean, I want to be in love when I get married. Well, yeah, everybody wants to be. Everybody is in love when they get married. But it's not all yippy-skippy every day. So either failure is an option or it's not. Are you going to leave that escape hatch or not? Jesus is not leaving himself an escape hatch. And that makes the cross and the humiliation of it all the more glorious because in the deepest, darkest pit the world's, a person's ever been in in this world comes the most glorious, amazing thing, the forgiveness of sin. In the greatest miracle of all time, resurrection on one's own steam, it just makes it all the more wondrous because failure was not an option for him. So he wasn't afraid of this at all. So he had no reason to put people down to make them stop. So that's at least one part of it. And, and, and you, you begin to see this in the next chapter, in chapter 8, where uh, Jesus has been uh, talking to his disciples about who do people say I am. And I'm not going to go too deep in this because this is the hinge point of the whole story. And when we get there, I want us to have some stuff to, to talk about. But, but Jesus, you just need to understand, is not looking, he's not doing a poll to make himself feel good. He's not like a politician. Do people like me? Do I need to say some other things that they'll like better? He's not doing that. He's, he's, he's looking for an avenue to find out from his disciples, so what's going on in your heads and hearts? In fact, we know that because of what he asked next, verse 29. What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. There it is again. And here's the thing. Peter's not a demon. He's not even a healed person who could sort of kind of twist the truth because they were so excited He's not a person from the crowd who would change the narrative of what Jesus was up to. These are his disciples. Why do they have to be quiet? Because later on, he, doesn't, he tells them to do the opposite. He says, go and tell the world. Everybody, right? But right here, he said, hey, be quiet about that. Well, part of the understanding of that comes with what the word Messiah means, the name Messiah. See, the Hebrew word is Messiah, that's, and they would be speaking Aramaic, which is a dialect of Hebrew, so Mashiach, Messiah. The, the Greek uh, translation of that, or the Greek uh, version of the uh, Hebrew Bible says Christ. That's not his last name, that's who he is. The, both words mean the anointed one. He is the Christ. So when, when Peter says that, that's what he's referring to, Messiah. And the thing that Jesus knows and the thing that we 
know, if we're honest about it, is that people are forever trying to put Jesus in their own image. People are ever trying to make out Jesus to be who they want him to be. And that's what was beginning to happen in Jesus' ministry here. You know, a good example is still happening today. There's a new Netflix uh, TV show on. I don't know if you've seen this. I I haven't seen it. I just watched the trailer so I could say this. Um, It's about some uh, very fairly weak-looking Middle Eastern man who's become known as the Messiah, and the CIA gets involved. Is he a terrorist? Because it's going viral, from what I can tell from the, the trailer. Uh, you know, psychologists get involved. Is he a nut? What are we going to do about his crazy followers? All that kind of stuff, okay? Which, you know, there's probably some truth in that. I'm probably not going to watch it, though. I mean, because here's the deal. Uh, Mark's point is, is follow the evidence. And, and, you know, why not deal with the real evidence instead of something that came out of Hollywood? Just saying. But all I'm bringing that up for is to say we constantly tried to recreate him in, in, in Jesus in our own image. And in, in, in Jesus' day, people had recreated the Messiah. When Peter says, you're the Messiah, basically what people are saying when he's saying, what Jesus is saying when he's saying, be quiet, he's saying, Hey, I want to make sure that I get to define what that means. And here's why. Because people starting about 160, 150 to 200 years before Jesus uh, comes to earth, before he starts um, his teaching ministry, uh, the rabbis and the religious scholars had started to unpack some of those prophecies a little more about the Mashiach, the Messiah. In, in, in Isaiah, in Daniel, and the Son of Man, and, and what this Messiah came out as, if you look at the Midrash, if you look at the writings that they had uh, about this Messiah, the Messiah starts looking very much like an ancient rabbi except with a sword. You know, somebody, somebody who was going to come and militaristically put down all of Israel's enemies. And so, you know, they're, they're, that was very strong in the time. In fact, the 50 or 60 years before Jesus actually starts his te- Jesus, uh, teaching ministry, there had been um, these groups uh, that had risen up, these armies, these small armies that had risen up against Rome after they put the boot on Palestine or against Herod after he'd ascended to the puppet throne that Rome let him have uh, or, or just these vigilantes running around who uh, were called zealots that would take on this and take on that. And, and uh, in fact, Jesus had one of those people in his group, Simon the Zealot. And, and he was basically Simon the Vigilante, but uh, formerly Vigilante by this time. But, but, but the thing is that, that uh, Jesus uh, w- was operating and ministering in that environment when people heard that he was a Messiah, that's what they would think. Oh, good. Yeah, look, he can do miracles. Surely he can beat the tar out of the Romans. Surely he can do that. And so they would immediately assume. So they would put on him what they expected the Messiah to be. It's, it's not anything different than what we do tend to do today. When God shows up, surely he will support my side. That's kind of the human nature reaction to God. Surely you've got to be like this for me. And if, if God, if you want me to follow me, surely you'll do this for me and so forth and so on, right? I mean, we tend, we tend to go that way. All of those groups, by the way, that came up against Rome, the reason they were so agitated, the reason that they felt like they had divine strength was because their leaders all called themselves the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus wasn't about to be lumped into that. 
There's also a, a, an interesting phenomenon that's sort of pretty much ground level that most humans will do. We, we just tend to try and make God into the image that we think he should be. There's, a, there's a, actually a, some sociological principles about this. They started with uh, uh, sort of the father of modern uh, sociology named Emil Durkheim back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He, did, he was the first one to call out the fact by looking at the religions of aboriginal tribes and that sort of thing that human beings tend to put on their gods, small g, the, uh, you know, human anthropomorphic expressions or animistic animal expressions. We, we tend to expect our God to act like us. And if we're not careful, we do that. Or, or we, you know, we will, we will use phrases like, you know, he's strong as a bear or, or she's wise as a fox, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and so you, you, you kind of, put these labels and these images as sort of like, when God shows up, surely he will be whom I think he should be. And when Jesus says, hey, be quiet, he's saying, no, 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 I need to define this. Mark is trying to make the point, and I think Peter was trying to make through, hit the point through Mark, if in fact there is that deep of a connection, to say it is a very dangerous thing to try and make out Jesus to be who you want him to be and who you expect them to be, whether it be in your life or whether it be uh, in, um, you know, the way you express them to other people or, you know, okay, Jesus, I'll really trust in you if you are this way or that way. No, the method and the message of the book of Mark is simply to do this. Follow the evidence where it leads Follow the evidence. And Jesus, that's all Jesus is asking me to do. I don't, I'm not going to live my life. I'm not going to do my ministry. I'm not going to go to the cross based on rumors of what a Messiah is. I'm going to show you what a Messiah is. I'm going to show you what the Messiah is, the one that's been prophesied, the one who is divine, the one who is from God himself and who is God himself. And so as a result, we have at least three reasons why Jesus would tell people to keep this all secret. There's three reasons for this secret. The first one is strategic and practical, just like we were saying. You can imagine, if Jesus lets this out, who he is, he can't afford to have the Romans swoop in or the religious leaders whip up the Romans to swoop in too early and put him on the cross because he's got a lot of mission to do. He's got a lot of groundwork to lay. He's got some, some teaching to do, and he's got a, a group of disciples to pass this on to. So, you know, it can't be that, uh, that way. Besides that, there's a very practical reason. If Jesus goes with everybody's expectations for him, he will take it from the divine down to the earthy. If he goes with their preconceived notions of how God's supposed to act, boom. It's, it, it's, a, it's toast. The real Messiah, the real God, man, would not do that. The real Son of Man would not do that. The second one is, is prophetic or apologetic, uh, apologetic being a defense of the truth. Jesus is trying to defend the prophet, prophecies of the Old Testament about who he was and explain who he was. And, and far from a militaristic king, he's the king, mind you, but far from a typical human militaristic king, he was one for whom... Uh, Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah 42 says, a crushed, a bruised reed he will not crush, a smoldering wick he will not put out. That sounds pretty mild, pretty, pretty gracious, pretty meek in some ways. And yet there's this powerful statement in Isaiah 49, he will have the sword of God 
and he'll be able to wield it. But originally it'll be hidden in the hand, in the shadow of the Father's hand. So there's this, there's this real balance that blows our minds. And we've never seen anything like this, of course. We have no idea how that can work. I mean, how in the world? But Jesus is saying, yeah, but it's the truth. I know it blows your mind. God's ways are higher than your ways. I'm up to something you can't see right now. Just stay, stay with this. Stay with me. I'm that Messiah. I'm not just the one somebody made up. I'm not making this up as I go. And then finally, the cross. The cross that reveals it all. It, it, it's the Christological reason, which is a fancy word for the study of Christ. It, it's, it's the reason. It, the cross explains all of the secret stuff. You don't really fully understand it until you get to the end, granted. But if you don't walk with Jesus along the way, you're going to miss so much wondrous things and truth about your life and, and his life in you and what it means that the God is truly with us, that the presence of God is with you. And you're, you're, the only way to avoid that is to avoid insisting that Jesus march by your ideology or mine. See, we still do that. You hear politicians all the time claim that God's on their side, that they're the city on the hill. <laughs> but Jesus is not a Democrat or a Republican. There are secular sectors of both of those that Jesus would reject and abhor. And I know there's, you know, more of this than none of that. I, I know that. There are also in both things that were started and values and caring for people that was started by the Judeo-Christian ethic itself. It's not, Jesus isn't um, somebody who is here either, who, who, who matches up with the scholars, say, more than the everyday people like you and me. You know, there was a, there was a, uh, a group of people called the Jesus Seminar in the late 20th century who were trying to recreate the, the, uh, the historical Jesus. What they meant by that is they, were, they got together once or twice a year from around the world, these, these you know, brilliant scholar people who, who were supposed to be so objective that they would never create, uh, you know, do this based on what they think and rather than you know, what the evidence actually is. And so they got together and they would pull out all the miraculous stuff, of course, sort of like Thomas Jefferson's Bible. They pulled out all the stuff about Jesus that was miraculous, and that can't be historical, that can't be real, and can't have really happened, and Jesus must be this, and so they had maybe a page left, I don't know what they had. But then a, a, a rising scholar who is now famous, a New Testament scholar, uh, showed up at their seminar one day and was invited to join in. His name was Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. By the end of one of their sessions, he says, you know, people um, I just feel I need to say this. This Jesus that you're describing, this, this actual historical Jesus, that this is the true part and this is not the true part, that one you're saying is true looks an awful lot like you. Uh, didn't, they didn't meet that often after that because it sort of defeated, it showed the, the falsehood of what they were attempting to do. Follow the evidence where it leads. Jesus is, would say, I'm not here for just your preconceived notions or anybody's preconceived notions of who I'm supposed to be. I'm not the city Jesus or the country Jesus or the, the suburban Jesus. I'm not the, the Israeli or Arab Jesus. Yeah, he was Jewish, but he was here for all of that. I'm not the white or black. No race has the, the uh, corner on the Jesus market. White or any other race. 
or, or Hispanic or Asian. I, that's not who I am. I'm not the, the comforting Jesus all the time, and I'm neither am I the challenging Jesus all the time. I'm both. I'm all of that, and I'm none of that. All you need to do, he is saying through his secret, is you just follow me. But he's talking about what Mark is pushing for and what the gospel writers are pushing for and what I believe Jesus originally was pushing for was a lifestyle, a lifestyle shift for all of us. For those of us who say, yeah, we're going to be his followers. It's a, it's a lifestyle that has been called practicing the presence of God. Because if God is fact with us, then simply practicing him one day and another. It's also been called the lifestyle of mere Christianity. There's a famous writer who coined that phrase, and his name was Richard Baxter. C.S. Lewis got it from him. So I thought I'd pull that out. 1700s, a Puritan writer from England, Richard Baxter, says, you know, it's about mere Christianity. It's about simply living the life of Jesus and following him day to day. Simply following him. I love most of all, I think, Jesus' definition in one of these stories we looked at. It's the story, again, of the little girl who was healed. It's the one Christian was talking about last week. Who was not just healed, resurrected. And, and, and there Jesus simply looks at the people as everybody's weeping and crying because it's a horrible tragedy, this little 12-year-old. Awful, horrible thing. And Jesus comes into the crowd and he says, don't be afraid, just believe. A lifestyle of just believe. But Jesus, I don't have all the answers I need. I know. Just believe. But I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow at that doctor's appointment. I don't know what's going to happen with my boss. I don't know what's going to happen with my teacher at school. And that test, I know. I know. I'll be there. You just believe. But Jesus, I cannot figure out why you're allowing these things to happen, why you're maybe even complicit in the situations that are all around us and in the world and when I see on the news, I don't know. I know. You will one day. I know you don't. But you just believe me. Just believe. Because here's what he'd say. He'd say, it's not an accident that you have the life you have. It's not an accident that you live there you live. It's not an accident that you're here today listening to an obscure uh, subject, a theme from the book of Mark. But it's not so obscure, I guess, because Jesus does it over and over again. It's not an accident that this is your church. Jesus is saying, all you need to concern yourself with is just trusting me and believing. Don't be afraid. Don't let your confusion drop first you away from me because there are things going on that you can't understand. Yet, just believe. And in the midst of all that, Jesus winds up his ministry ultimately telling us who we are as much as telling him who he is. And by the we, I mean the people who follow him. The, this is what we're trying to do in this Resilient Christians class, really what we're talking about today. We're talking about, you know, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And that's where Jesus ultimately defines that. I'm going to call the band out here. Let me just, but first, as they're coming out, let me read for you a scripture where Jesus defines who we are, and it's, it's the next step after the secret, after the hiding, after the be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, after the cross and the resurrection. Here's who we are now and who Jesus is, uh, is in us. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. 
Matthew, who is there, reports this is something that Jesus taught and said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may, be, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So things won't always be hidden. The light's going to get out. And by his grace and his goodness, Jesus has decided that the light should not just come from above and just kind of be out there and beyond, but come from within here and right out there from you and me. In many ways, his secret is a way of including you and I in what he's up to in this world. And that sets us up for what we're going to talk about next week. But for right now, let me pray for us and with us. Heavenly Father, as we're praying here today, we just want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for sending Jesus, yes, but doing it in such a way that included us and still includes us and comes all the way down through those centuries right down here to 2020. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us that as far as you're concerned, your mission when you were here on earth in the flesh, failure is not an option. And thank you for showing us now, today, with you here on earth, with us now, and present in this room with us by your Spirit, in our lives, in our church, in our community, in the remnant of people that believe in you across this country and across the world, As far as you're concerned, failure is still not an option. You have done what you said you would do when you first came. We have more confidence than ever because of that, that you will do what you've said you will do now. It's just not an option that failure should happen. I pray that you'd impress that on person, every person's heart here today. If there's anyone that doesn't know you, that's not following you here today, I just pray that the grace with which you've shown us, these people, and shown us uh, how you want to bring your message into our heart and lives, that somehow by your Spirit you would open it up, that you would touch them exactly where they need to be touched. If there's anything I've said that doesn't really need to be there from them, just scratch it from their memories. But you talk to them. You lead them in. May this be that day, but for, and for, the, for all of us, and may we go out of here knowing that God is with us. And the light can shine now. And it's all because you shepherded your mission and your message for those three years before you were crucified, proved it to be true, and then rose from the dead to answer all the other questions. Because if you did that, It's a lot easier to believe that you are who you said you are right now, here and now, in our lives. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being here. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.